Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we ask the question, can you be an introverted authority? Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah. So I know you're reading a book that you're re- really loving that kind of kicked off this conversation. What's that one? Yeah, it's um, Adam Grant's a slightly older book. It's been around a few years, but it's called Give and Take, Why Helping Others Drives Our Success. And I, Jonathan, I'm loving this book. I I haven't finished it, so I'm no expert on what he's saying yet, but I'm fascinated by some of the implications in it for authority. Yeah, I mean, I haven't read it, but based on the subtitle, I already agree with it because I'm a huge fan of that sort of pay it forward kind of, I mean, I I don't think it's as woo-woo as karma. I don't think it's magic to help other people and then it ends up coming, kind of coming back to you. Uh, it doesn't doesn't surprise me at all. I think it, it's probably scientific. And I, you said this guy's a researcher, right? Yeah, he's a university professor. And um, so the, the basic premise of the book is that there are three kinds of people, and everybody is a mix of all, but we lead with one. You're either a giver, you're a taker, we know what those are, or you're something he calls a matcher, which is more about, I'm going to do something for you because you're going to do something for me versus givers that are more about, I'm going to give. I just want people to pay it forward. I'm giving for the sake of giving. Mm -hmm. And you know, everybody knows what a taker is. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So here's the, here's the thing that really stuck out to me when you were telling me about this before the show was that, that authority can, I think, take on that kind of managerial type of authority where you will do what I say like it, it does have that meaning, but that's not the meaning that we mean. It's more like a recognized expert and a thought leader in a particular space, more of a leader or a visionary and not someone who's bossing other people around based on some set of rules that they've agreed to. And in the book, you mentioned that that the taker style personality is very assertive, very egocentric, talking dominant. about I, I, I. Yeah, dominant. Yeah, exactly. very dominant. And that the that that is not in fact the best way to get people to trust you, which I I took to mean in a leadership sense, you know, to trust you to take them on a journey. The story that I, that I thought was really interesting that maybe you could share is the one about in the sales context, because I think a lot of people relate yeah, to this. The the optician example, right? So apparently, Dr. Grant did a a study for a client who was hired to do this work. And what he did was they wanted to understand how they could sell more as opticians. And it was a national chain of some sort. And so what they did is they ran this assessment to figure out who's a giver, who's a taker, who's a matcher. And then they identified the top givers. um, And they also took a look at, at some takers as well. And then once they did that, Adam actually went into some of these stores and sometimes just interviewing them, other times going in as a customer, a potential customer. And what they found was the top, the very top salespeople were all heavy givers. And the difference was, and I I think our audience can relate to this because this is a lot of what we do in our profession is somebody would come in the door and the, the top sales, two salespeople that he talked to, uh, are givers. They say, so, hello, madam, you know, how can I help you? And so they'll say, I have these glasses or I need glasses. Well, um, do you, what kind of work do you do? Um, are you doing close computer work? Are you 
playing sports of some kind. Oh, well, what kind? Oh, you're a swimmer. Okay, so you have these needs. So they just keep parsing down, parsing down, having a conversation and asking questions and being what I think of as without ego, right? Because your your job is to figure out what that customer really needs. And so when they looked at, um, for the whole organization, the people who were takers were not the best salespeople. The takers were the ones that, that came in and said, oh, you want sunglasses. All right, let me look at your face. Okay, here, put these on. Oh, wow, you look great. You've got a really manly, <laughs> handsome face. These are for you. And right. I mean, you know, we've all been in that situation and you don't trust when somebody you don't even know tells you that mm-hmm. it's you know it's all about getting relationships yeah so that maps to so many things that i wholeheartedly agree with from just gut instinct but also evidence anecdotal evidence but evidence nonetheless that's my basically my premise of the why conversation where you have a sales interview with a prospect and instead of being pitching being pushy and saying we're the best we're the cheapest we're we're the ones we're the only ones that you can choose and without even really understanding what the client wants to achieve, I feel like that's not only not very effective, but it's a great way to, to not get the gig or uh, compete on price, all of these, all of these things that are not good for your business. And the why conversation is literally not figuratively, literally you trying to talk them out of working with you, raising every possible objection that they would have to hiring you. Why would you hire the most expensive one of whatever this is, you know, why would you hire the most expensive web strategist when you could just get an intern or get somebody else or why not not do this at all? Like why invest in this big project at all? Why not put this off? All of those things. If you are sitting in a room or you're on the phone with someone who's going to turn out to be a good client, they're going to answer all those things and they're going to, they're, they're basically answering what would have potentially been their own objections. And if someone can talk the potential client out of working with them, then there probably wasn't a lot of value there. Probably wasn't a great fit. And when I say value, I mean for both parties, it just probably wasn't a great fit. That also maps to hands down the best book on selling I've ever read. If you, if you, especially for introverts or people who think selling has to be slimy or pushy or uh, this idea of persuading someone or convincing someone or tricking someone into buying something they don't want or need. And that book is called The Secret of Selling Anything by Harry Brown. And it it is game changing for somebody who thinks sales is gross. And it's all about that. It is all about like, well, Mr. Potential Customer, why would you why would you want this? What what are the problems in your life that you're trying to solve? What are the things that you're trying to achieve? And if there's an overlap where the vacuum cleaner or the software as a service product or the coaching, if there's an overlap that, that that product could potentially help the buyer and the price is right based on the value, then like, why wouldn't they buy it? Well, it's what you're talking about is what Adam Grant would say is it's a giver mentality, right? And that's, that's, we are service people. We are providing a service. We are um, midwifing a transformation is sometimes how I talk about <laughs> That's it. Awesome. That's but great. it is. It's what we do. And so in order to do that, I, I just think that the giver mentality makes sense. But I think sometimes people think that giving, especially in when it comes to authority, giving puts you in a powerless position. Oh, great point. Yeah, that's not true. 
No, it's right. the, the and that's the whole crux of the book is that. And when I use the word power, I mean in all positive ways, right? The power is all with the givers in the sense that you can create what you want by helping other people. Yeah. It is sort of counterintuitive. It's like, how could you possibly succeed by giving everything away? And I know it's it's like a little, you know, like if you love something, set it free. It feels very, <laughs> feels very 60s. It's very but woo-woo it, for you, Jonathan. Yeah, but it's, like I said, it might probably in my... 20s or maybe even my 30s, I wouldn't have believed it. I was never one of those hustle people, but it does feel like the opposite of, of that hustle crowd and the life hacker crowd and push, 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 push. And I think that's that's the kind of thing that gives certainly sales a bad name, also marketing a bad name. And the bigger picture here is if you want to be an authority, whether or not I'm talking about or whether or not uh, you're thinking about like a financial transaction sales, like if you're if you're an authority and you're leading people to this new vision, you need to sell them on the idea, if nothing else. So understanding the the people you seek to serve or the target audience or whatever you want to call it, understanding what's in it for them. So understanding them enough to know what's in it for them uh, to follow you to this new place is critical. I mean, it, it needs to Honestly, I wouldn't know how to communicate any ideas without knowing that. Like, how would I, uh, how would you do that? And I can think of examples from my past where I did it the other way, and it didn't really work that well. It just, so if you want something that actually works, <laughs> try giving. And, and it, it boils down to a lot of listening, actually. At one point in the book, he does talk a little bit about authority the way we talk about authority. And he, he has some evidence to back it up, which I don't have at my fingertips at the moment. But the idea is that when we look to someone for authority, we actually want them to be human. So we want them and we like it when they go, uh, well, which really made me feel a lot better about my ahs <laughs> and ums on the show. Um, but, you know, and, and he used some anecdotal evidence as well, but it's that we want the people we look to to be real. And then in the in the pre-show, Jonathan and I were talking about, well, but are there situations where you want someone to be dominant? And there are those situations where we want to be led to something, you know, like the, the, the Titanic is sinking. Right. And we want to get in the right get on the lifeboat. Boats, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But for most of what we do, being human is what gets others engaged in our cause. Yeah, the word that's going through my mind is connect. That's that's what allows them to connect. So it's not like um, the ivory tower thing is really hard to relate to. Pronouncements from on high. This is how the world should be. This is what you should do to make your life better. Do this, do this, do this. Do as I say is... I've tried it in the past. It's, I think it's the obvious, maybe it's just my personality type, but when I was doing, especially early in the iPhone days when I was really big in that and I used a lot of evangelical pronouncements about the future of business and how this was going to, you know, lots of predictions and I probably, probably didn't have a great correctness percentage looking back on it. Some things I was dead on, but but off by five years, you know, mobile payments was one that I used to talk about all the time. And that's still barely here. And but the the point is, I can think back to actual client meetings that I was in where there's one really particular one in my mind where it was a lot of people from the client, like 40 or 50 people from the client. 
And I'm up in front of the room doing a presentation about the importance of responsive web design and like what that means for their business and not to get too far into the weeds, but I was getting a lot of pushback, which I didn't expect at all. It seemed so obvious to me that this was the way things should be. And the stance that I took in the moment, and it wasn't just this one time, but this one time really stands out to me, where if I could go back, I would have listened more because I didn't even listen to their objections. In my head, I'm just like, they don't get it. They're behind the times. I need to push harder to explain. Here's some more data that will show you that what you're saying is stupid. (laughs) You know, instead of listening, bringing them along, because they don't, they have, these were completely different people from me. I mean, like totally different, not in this area of expertise, different ages, everything different. And it would have been a really good opportunity to like, listen, well, let me understand, like, well, I hear that you're not agreeing with me. I hear that you're objecting to this. What are the, why are you thinking that? I didn't do that at all, mm-hmm. which was a huge mistake. Huge yeah. mistake. Well, one of the stories he tells in the book was actually a story about himself. And he was in his 20s. He just finished his PhD and he was invited by, I think it was the army, but it was a branch of the military. And he was going in to talk to, oh, but it was the Navy. He was going in to talk to, I think it was majors and colonels. And they were going to transition into some new kind of work. But some of them, you know, he gave examples, like some of them were fighter pilots, you know. So these are, and he said they had all these cool nicknames. So he goes in there with his self-described 24-year-old self, and he goes in there with his presentation, and he bombed. And he actually said, you know, some of the feedback, like, oh, my God, this guy, we learned nothing. We learned more from talking to ourselves in the breaks than we did from this guy. And so then they were going to bring him back a few months later. And he said, I had to do something different. So he opened it up and said, well, you know, I imagine this feels really weird being taught this by a 12-year-old. And there was like this hesitation. And then everybody started laughing. And he said it was virtually the same material. Everything was exactly the same. But by opening up and and being vulnerable, basically, Um, he won them over. So same material, very similar group, uh, much higher ratings. And in fact, they used his line in some of the the feedback from the session. So it was a great example for him to see what a difference it makes when you, you can't see my face, I'm putting my head down. It's there's the, I think there's a humility about that process that says, okay, I'm going to focus on the desires of this group versus my own ego need to be really good. So how can I take what I have and help them get it? What's the best way possible? And when you strip the ego aside, which is really hard for us to do, I think, but that's when you get really powerful as an authority or an authority, you know, an expert slash authority in the making. You triggered a memory I haven't thought about in a long time. I remember probably the one of the best talks I ever gave, and I can say that because not because I think it was, but because that was the feedback that I got from from the you know things, the surveys they fill out at the end. But I remember the I had given lots and lots of conference talks at in front of big crowds of people, and I would just sort of go up there and I do. It was very much like the um, here are the facts. This is what's going to happen. This is what I think. You know, here's my predictions. Here's what you can do about it. Uh, and then I would take questions and that sort of thing. But it really was, it was a lot more of that, that first style, that bombing style. Not that I would bomb, but it just felt like uh, disconnected from the audience. 
And I yeah. remember, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like I Sage on stage, not um, like there was n- not as not the kind of energy. I don't know. I didn't really know it until this one time where I did something different and it changed like everything. So I, I went up and huge room, probably the biggest audience I ever spoke to was at South by Southwest. And I don't know where it came from, but I, I, there was just like this perfect moment where I could tell a self-deprecating, I made a self-deprecating comment and laughed and the audience completely got the joke. They thought it was hilarious. And I had never, ever told a joke in a talk before that. I'd never said anything funny and certainly not self-deprecating. And it changed the, and this is a big room. We're talking like maybe 2000 people in the audience and the vibe in the whole room completely changed. It, it like all of a sudden it felt like we were all together instead of me talking to this giant group. And you felt it. Like oh, yeah. Viscerally, physically, you felt it. Yeah. And then in the reviews afterwards, it got rated the number one talk at South by Southwest. Not to humble brag too much, but but I'm just That's saying. pretty it, cool. It wasn't, it's not me just saying, oh, that was an amazing talk. Like the audience felt it too is what I'm saying. It feels like it ties into this same thing where I was just like, I said something like, and then these guys at this company figured this, you know, I tried to do this thing, but I wasn't smart enough to do it. Fortunately, these guys did, or these guys were smart enough to do it. And everybody thought it was hilarious. And, and it was, it was kind of like, I, I essentially called myself not that smart. And it was the polar opposite of anything I'd done prior to that. And going forward, I was like, I need to try to incorporate that in because it's, it's just more effective for the audience. Like it's gonna, you know, if there's something that you, some change you're trying to make or something action you want them to do a different way to view things to change their mind about something, that's a pretty tough thing to do. You need to pull out everything you can. And I think being a little bit, you know, if you want to call it humble or self-deprecating or um, not pushy or vulnerable. Sure. We we responded. I mean, just in the book alone, I really responded to Grant sharing that story about himself because I could just picture this like freshly minted PhD (laughs) taking on the world and then getting slapped around by a bunch of aging fighter jocks, right? Right. But he came back and he figured it out and he changed it. And, and, you know, he was willing to share that story, including some of the of the performance feedback that makes the thing that comes next even more believable because he's real. There was another example. I won't go through the whole thing, but they had it was a lawyer and it was a big case. And this lawyer, even though he was a good lawyer at what he did, he, he didn't really try cases in the courtroom. And it was his first courtroom jury trial. And he was up against this authority, I guess you would call it. As he was presenting his closing arguments, apparently he stuttered. And he'd had a lifelong issue with stuttering, but doesn't stutter that often. And wasn't even sure that he had stuttered. But this guy who became the foreman of the jury, this lawyer, the stuttering lawyer, was convinced that this guy was not going to find for him. Um, But they did. And later, I guess he was able to talk to him and, and he said, we loved that you stuttered. I mean, he just kind of like, I stuttered? I did? But the reason they did is because he'd done all the work. I mean, it's not like he didn't lay the case. It's not like he didn't make his points. It's not like he didn't do his homework. He did all of that. But they felt like he was so authentic because he stuttered. 
And I mean, we're looking for cues that the people that we really respect as authorities or experts, authorities in the making, that they're real people. And so we can bond with them on the weirdest things. We titled this episode, Can You Be an Introverted Authority? And I think, you know, maybe we should talk more about that idea. I keep saying vulnerability, but I, I, I also come back to putting our egos aside It feels so obvious to me at this point, but I know that there probably are a lot of people that feel like that kind of evangelist approach is the way that they have to act to get this kind of community to, to further idea to spread and for a community to follow them and care about this thing, whether it's climate change or hourly billing or whatever. And it's, it's a, it's easy to imagine that you need to be perfect and have, you know, like, oh, I need to be, I need to be flawless. I need to be perfect. I need to set myself as an example, kind of uh, hold yourself. Maybe, maybe you'd think of it as I need to hold myself to a higher standard or something like that. I'm not prepared to say that doesn't work, but I am prepared to say that you definitely do not (laughs) need to be like that. If that's yes. not your jam, you know, if, if, if it's not your natural style, yeah. it's, it's going to feel really f- false and to falsehood. Everyone. Yeah. Falsehood and inauthenticity doesn't sell your authority. Right. Right. And yeah. And, and I do want to, I was talking about sales. I think I talked about sales kind of a lot earlier. It's like, it's, you might not be selling, you know, trying to get someone to buy a car or buy your book or something or a coaching program, but you're you're in this space, you're going to be selling your ideas constantly all the time. So if what you're doing now isn't effective, then maybe here are some other things to consider. Like, are you putting on an act? Do you think you need to be this wizard at the top of the mountain with all the answers? Because if you are that, then fine, be that. But you're probably not. And you probably are a little bit more human than that. So so if you're pretending that you're that, that's probably not super effective, probably. But certainly if you're in a situation where you're like, ah, whatever I'm doing, the message isn't getting through, I'm banging my head against the wall, maybe being a little bit more your normal, humble, introverted, goofy self, might be that might be more effective than, than trying to pretend to be something that you think an authority should be like. Yes. I'm thinking about uh, a longtime client of mine, and he's kind of what you described. I don't know if I would say goofy, but he's he's really smart, really good at what he does. He's what I call a rocket scientist in terms of his authority. He can quote you anything, and he's a researcher, so he comes by that naturally. And most of his career was spent as a PhD researcher inside a big organization, and then he transitioned to... This work um, has co-authored some books, and he is quiet, unassuming, except he's very kind. He would always say, Rochelle, how are you today? What is happening? He would always remember the name of my pets, my husband's name. He would remember where I went on vacation, but he was an introvert. Very quiet in a meeting. Get him up on the stage, all bets were off. And again, he was still very calm, but he was so passionate about his subject and he didn't have a big ego. 
So he was really good at taking questions from the audience and he was really good at bringing them along with him on this journey of knowledge in his area of expertise. And sidebar, he was also great at at telling stories about those things and make, helping the audience to make connections. One of his um, co-authors is the opposite in the sense that he's very extroverted, you know, very kind of dominant style of communication. They work very well together. But on stage, the quiet one has a strength and a connection that a lot of speakers don't have. He, he was brilliant at the podium. I, I always called him a situational extrovert. He's really an introvert, but you if you wind any introvert up on their topic, right, where they feel competent, they feel expert, they feel prepared, they have their data, they're going to go. And they're going to be really hyper-effective as an expert or an authority. What do you think the behavioral... I mean, you've, you've listed a few, so I was wondering if we could kind of brainstorm a list real quick of the attributes that a giver would exhibit in these sorts of situations. seems like listening is huge. Oh, yeah. I guess maybe it's the same as giving. It's being helpful. As you're listening, you're trying to find out what can I do to help this person? So it's listening. It's really asking good questions, which we sort of talked about in the why conversation. I think when you ask deeper questions, you get deeper answers. That's the truth. Ask, ask a vague question, you're going to get a vague answer. <laughs> Keep going deeper and it gets more interesting. You feel more engaged. I think this is before the show you were telling me about the book about the most connected person on LinkedIn or something like that. And it, his, was it a he? I think it was. Yeah, it was a he. And f- f- I think it was Forbes had done a study. They wanted to find out who's the most connected uh, networker in America and they went into LinkedIn and, you know, did some magic there. And they came up with this guy that nobody had ever heard of in Silicon Valley. He was connected to like the co-founder of or the founder of Twitter. I mean, he just he knew everybody. Mm-hmm. And, his, and his behavior was very much like I think you were saying, it, you know, at a, a party, he would just barely talk. He would just like listen and connect people. Yeah, he didn't really have much to say. He was classic, classic introvert. And I I think he might have even said, you know, painfully shy, but a genius. Um, But he had a big heart and he wanted to help people. And because he was shy, he would listen. It's hard to listen when you're talking. (laughs) (laughs) Shocker. (laughs) I know. So what what I found fascinating about him is he... And these were all people within Silicon Valley. So he stayed in that kind of tech space. But he would listen to people who were engineers who had a year or two of experience. And he would talk to them and try to connect them. He would listen to somebody who was trying to buy into an entity and say, oh, well, you should meet so-and-so. I believe he started this group that meets maybe monthly in Silicon Valley. And and the author of the book was talking about this guy, you know, big introvert walking into the room and being buttonholed constantly by people. And he would sit and listen to one person for 15 minutes and then say, okay, essentially opening up the Rolodex, quote unquote, the phone and saying, okay, here's three people you need to talk to. And it's not done in that crass, let's network kind of way. It's a deep listening and let me be helpful to you kind of way. Right. 
Yeah, and we've we've done whole episodes on you know how much you should share. Spoiler alert: everything. (laughs) (laughs) Just share, share, share. We've talked it past episodes about finding someone to help every day, help somebody every day. Doesn't have to be like it doesn't have to take your whole day. It could just take five minutes. Like, hey, saw this link, thought of you. In case you haven't seen it, things like that. Although there is a theory about that in the book. Yeah, yeah. The the apparently the the how matters when you're giving things away. So so he described two ways of giving things away. One is where you sprinkle, which is kind of like what you just said. Oh, let me do this favor for five minutes here and five minutes there. The other is to chunk. And I think you can figure out what that is, right? You chunk it or you sprinkle it. And he he said it in the context of volunteering. What's interesting is that the chunkers exhibit more happiness, more contentment, more satisfaction than the sprinklers. That's interesting. I do both. I think I do like chunking overall. I think I like it a little bit better, but that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, and again, he, he talked about it in terms of volunteering, which is a little bit different than, than this necessarily. But I like the idea that when you're, when you're, you have an authority business, there will be some time that you spend just giving, right? Whether it's, we're recording a podcast right now, right? Or Jonathan, maybe you're going to record three today if it's like some weeks. And so you chunk it and you do those together. But when you're done, you feel really powerful. You've just created something for other people to learn from. And you could call it, it's part of marketing as well. But in the moment, it's it's pure giving. It's like when we had Jill Conrath on the show and we asked her, like, how does the book play into your business? Did you do it for the marketing or for the money or like what was the motivation? And she took great pains to point out. And I believe her because I know what she means. She was like, yes, I recognize that my entire business is predicated on the success of these books, but that's not why I wrote it. That is a side effect. And she said that, she, you know, she wrote it because this book needed to be written. There were people who needed to read a book like this and there wasn't one. So she so she very much starts with I mean, she's not blind to the fact that it's also going to be good for her financially. But that just isn't the thing that made her get out of bed. It isn't the, the thing that made her do it. It wasn't the thing that made her think of that particular book. All of those things came from feedback from people who had read her previous book and were like, you know, this is, this is great, but I just don't have the time. So she's like, okay, I'm going to write one about, she's just like sales books. I'm going to write one about how to do all of this stuff or a, a version of this that you can do in less time that, but it's still effective. So it's at least you're better than nothing. I wouldn't be able to go back to the old way that I ran my business. When I first started my business, it was very much like horizontal expertise book speaking, book speaking, book speaking, book speaking, and then big clients would fall out of the woodwork. But like I said, the story I told about being in that meeting with 40 people and me not listening to their objections and really just kind of trying to bulldoze through them, it was always like that. I never was good at that kind of like interactive, like I would listen to, I don't know, it's hard to describe. It was like I had, I had a hammer, so therefore you are a nail. It was very much like that. Instead of, I've got a hammer, but I don't know if you need it. (laughs) And then have them kind of be like, well, I've got these kinds of problems. Can a hammer solve that? It's like, well, no, I don't think so. Maybe you need to go talk to screwdriver guy. I think some of that is the evolution. I mean, I think I've been in the same place where it's, 
when I was younger. It's like I have to, I'm in the room with all these older, smarter, way more brilliant people than me. Somehow I've got to prove that I, I deserve this chair in this room. But one of the things that Grant talks about that maybe applies here is he calls it otherish. Because one of the issues, which somebody in the audience might be thinking about right now, which is if I just keep give, 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 giving, like, what about my needs? Are my <laughs> needs going to get met, right? right? And so one of the things he looked at was consistently in the research that he either did or cited, givers come out at either the top of the heap or the bottom of the heap, which yeah, is kind of interesting. Sense. Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. And so the difference is that the ones at the top of the heap, he called them other-ish, which I thought was kind of interesting. And all he meant by that is that those that class or category of givers has their own goals, their own objectives, their own vision, versus the selfless givers are the ones that wind up on the bottom because those are the people that they're doing it for different reasons, right? They don't have an overriding set of, it's not just one goal necessarily, but an overriding set of goals ambitions, um, vision for themselves. And so they kind of get whipsawed in any direction. So the key, like, I think Jill Conrath is a great example of an otherish giver. Right, exactly. Yeah, she's, she's focused she's on that audience. But yeah. yeah, absolutely, a very clear rudder. That's a great yep. word for that. Mm -hmm. Right, so if if maybe, maybe that's something that the, the dear listener, if you feel like a giver or introverted or humble, and that's like totally natural for you, then it's perhaps critical to have an objective and have a strategy for reaching that objective. And maybe the strategy is to help as many people as you can every day to achieve this objective. But if you've got that North Star, then you're automatically going, because you're still going to make choices. How am I going to help today? You're still going to make choices. If you have that guiding light, you're probably going to, or, and if you're super conscious of it, you're almost certainly going to be moving toward that and therefore making some kind of forward progress. But if you have no specific objective, then these requests for your assistance or your support or your help, probably the ones that you, you won't, I mean, they'll all look roughly the same. There is no direction to follow. So you just probably just get pulled one inch in every direction forever and ever, and then end up like a martyr type of attitude. Well, and I also think when you first started talking about that, I was thinking the word right, the right people for you. Now a taker would go, well, the right people are the ones who can help me. But really the right people have to do with your vision and how you are at your best. And the example I was talking to you, Jonathan, about before the show is where somebody asked in a public forum a question about consulting. And, but it basically said, well, gee, I want to be, I want to qualify as a, as a disadvantaged business. And I live in California. Where do I go? Like, to me, that's like, well, start with Google and then do your homework and then ask the question, okay, this is what I want to do. And then I would jump in and help. But if somebody can't even be bothered to Google before they ask a question like that in my head. And again, this is just for me, for somebody else, maybe that's the right person to help. But in, in my head, I went, they're not ready for me. They're not the right person for me to help with that. Right. That's like a black hole of help. Yeah. I, I, I No end of assistance down yeah. that hole. I have 
get people referred to me by, by friends or you know, former colleagues or something and somebody just out of school. And there's a certain kind of person I just love to help because they're so busy helping themselves that they immediately leverage whatever help I can give them. And, and so it makes me want to do more versus the person who kind of, you know, is flailing. I can give them a little bit of direction, but I don't want to, I don't want to be their North star. I want them to develop that for themselves. Yes. That is a really good way to put it. Yes. Students who don't have a clear picture of where they're trying to go. It is so hard to, you know, we'll go through this process of like, okay, let's try and figure out what that objective is. Like, what is the place that you want to go? Like they know they're rudderless. So they might come to me because of that. And some of them know what it is. They just don't know how to get there or how to do it more quickly. But others don't even know where it is. And it is so much harder to help somebody find that on a timetable. I mean, it's like... Well, plus when you're looking for a job, it's sort of like a macro question and a micro question. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was thinking I, I had one of those not too long ago who blew me away with the specificity of her vision. She was just out of undergrad and she knew exactly what she wanted. She'd already been doing some side hustles to get to her long term and she had a short term plan on how to get there. I was really impressed with her. I mean, I I happily gave of my time and whatever expertise I could give her and thoughts because, you know, she knew what she wanted and she was motivated. But But again, it's who that audience is for you. I mean, you might be helping people who are really far down the hole and that that maybe that's your ideal audience. The key is what works for you so that when you're giving, you're giving, I don't know if Adam Grant would say it this way, but it's it's almost like you're giving where it does the most good. Yeah. Or another way to put it is you're giving in a way that's going to energize you in the moment, like immediately. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because that's what givers givers get off on giving. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. You actually feel better about the person for whom you've done a favor than that person feels towards you. Right. Okay. So, dear listener, permission to be introverted. It's not a. It's not a liability. It's like the opposite. I I love introverts because I feel like the 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 classic introvert is so busy listening. When they don't have to shut everything off to have quiet in their mind, but they're they're really good listeners. And a lot of people who do deep study in a field tend to be introverted. It's not the only kind of person that does that, but it's so you combine deep study, you combine uh, deep listening, and then the brain power to kind of put those things together. I mean, that's that's a classic authority. Yeah, I agree. Cool. We solved another one. We did. So you can be an introverted authority. Uh, <laughs> you do not have to be the uh, the evangelist to, uh, to right. win people over. Right, right. Cool. All right, folks. So I think that'll do it for this week. Do we, do we leave anything out? Should we at least send people one more time out to go and get Give and Take by Adam Grant? I think we should. It's Give and Take, Why Helping Others Drives Our Success, Adam Grant. And if you want to know if you're leaning towards giver, taker, or a matcher on his site, which I believe is adamgrant.net, you can actually take a little assessment and assess yourself. Ooh. Yeah. Run right over and find out. (laughs) It's it's pretty cool. (laughs) Cool. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. 
And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.